We're now in the part three of our marriage series, and I just want to do a quick recap. Uh, last week, we talked about marriage as a covenant. And what I mean by that is that marriage is a commitment to a lifelong exclusive relationship with your spouse. And that is a radical notion, I think, in our consumeristic culture because people say, and we hear this all the time, right, that I don't need a piece of paper to say I love you. And that's true as far as it goes, right? You don't need a piece of paper to feel what you feel at that moment. But what you're really saying is my love is on the condition that you make me happy, that you meet my needs. And that's not real love. That's, that's narcissism, right? That's, that's not loving the person. That's loving what the person does for you. Real love commits. Real love says I will be there with you to the end no matter what. And so that's, you know, love as a promise of commitment. And today we're going to look at love as, as companionship. And so uh, if you guys can turn to page four in your bulletins, we're going to look at the text which comes from Genesis chapter two. Genesis two. And so I'll read to you starting from verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to, and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then let me read to you Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of God. So today what we're uh, looking at is the reason for marriage. Here's the critical question. Why did God create marriage in the first place? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why did God create marriage in the first place? And this story shows us that God created marriage for companionship. Okay? The reason is companionship. Now where do we say that? Well, let's look at the story. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, that is a remarkable statement, right? Because all through the creation account, after each time God creates something, the text tells us, and God saw that it was good. And now, for the very first time, something is not good, right? And, and, and remember that this is before the fall. This is before sin has entered the story and marred creation, and yet something is not good, something is missing. 
And all the commentators that I consulted as I was studying for this text, all the commentators agree that this is one of the most remarkable statements in all of Scripture because remember where Adam is. Adam is living in paradise, right? He's living in the most overwhelmingly beautiful garden, right? And his work every day, right, is just so interesting and engaging and stimulating, right? Absolutely no drudgery, no tedium. And he has the best devotional life, right? Every day he walks with God, he talks and communes with God, and yet, and yet, even his perfect relationship with God is in some sense not enough. And the reason is because God created man to be that way. He created man to need someone else. That Adam by himself is in some sense deficient. Now why is that? Well, we need to go back in the story a little bit. And we need to go back to Genesis chapter 1. And that's why I printed uh, Genesis 1 there in your bulletins. And if you look at verses 26 and 27... Right, it says that man was created to be in the image of God, right? Imago Dei. And what that means is that man was to reflect who God is. And notice, and this is very, very important, okay? Notice that when God creates humanity, the pronoun suddenly shifts, right? Because every time prior to this, every time that God creates, it's in the singular. He creates. He creates. He creates, and then suddenly, with humanity, God says, let us create. Do you notice that, right? Let us create man in our image. What does that tell us? It tells us the most extraordinary thing. It tells us that there is a pluralness to God. That God is not just one, but he is a community. That before the beginning of time, through all eternity, the triune God was never alone, but he engaged in deep community, deep fellowship, deep love within the Trinity. And therefore, when God creates humanity, right, in his image, he doesn't create humanity as this solitary person, but he creates humanity as a community, right? That Adam by himself was not sufficient to image God, but, but in fact, only as a married couple, Adam and Eve image who God is, male and female. Now, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that the purpose of marriage is companionship. It's friendship. That we are not meant to be alone, but to be involved in deep community of which marriage is the most intimate expression, the most intense expression of. I don't know if you've uh, ever heard of something called the Supermax Prison, Um, but the Supermax Prison was invented a few decades back, and it was to house the nation's most dangerous criminals, the most hardened, the most irredeemable criminals. And the way Supermax works is uh, the prisoners are, are kept in their prison cells And the cells have no windows, right? And the only access to the outside world is this thin little slit at the door where they receive their meals. And uh, they're kept in complete isolation. they, They have no contact with anyone else. They can't even hear other prisoners, right? It's absolute isolation. No one comes into their prison cell. And only one hour every day, they're escorted out of their cell, right? No one is allowed to touch them. And they're brought to this kind of courtyard where by themselves they're allowed to stretch 
you know, exercise and get some fresh air. And psychologists who have looked at the supermax prisons have said that this is the greatest torture ever invented. It's the greatest torture ever invented. And I find that really interesting because it's not like we do anything physical to these prisoners, right? It's not like we're, we're poking them with like electric prods or something or like beating them. All we're doing is isolating them. All we're doing is depriving them of human contact. And prisoners have testified that as the years stretch on, they began to go crazy in the supermax prison, right? Because we just weren't meant to be isolated like that. Um, there's a movie called uh, Castaway. And uh, it's the story of uh, this man who survives, uh, played by Tom Hanks, who survives this plane crash and he lands alone on this deserted island. And uh, in order to kind of keep himself from going crazy and because he's so lonely, he, he rummages through the, uh, the debris from the plane crash and he finds this volleyball, right? And uh, he kind of puts on these human features on the volleyball, right? So it makes the volleyball like have a, a smiley face, kind of looks like a human face. And he calls the volleyball Wilson. Right? And if you've seen the movie, right, he has almost a kind of believable relationship with Wilson. You know, they have conversations. They even get into fights, right? And where they like, have to separate for a while and then they have these like, tearful reunions, right? Now, it's a really believable relationship. Why is it? Why does Tom Hanks feel the need to get a volleyball, give it a name, and have these imaginary conversations with it. I'll tell you why. Because so deep is our need for relationship, for connection. And so marriage is for companionship. Okay? But here's the question. What sort of companion do we need? And so let's read on. Okay? Verse 18. God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, what is this passage telling us? A tremendous amount. First, the story tells us that, that, that Adam needs a helper. Now, that word, helper, is one of the most uh, misunderstood uh, words in the Bible, right? Because when you think of, when I say helper, what do you think of? You're thinking of junior assistant, right? You're thinking of this errand runner, right? And it has this connotation of inferiority, right? And so the image that people have is, oh, the purpose of the wife is she does all the menial tasks, right? Like some kind of secretary, so that the man can do the real work out there, right? Completely, completely wrong, okay? Wipe that image from your head. Here's what it means. The Hebrew word there for helper is azer. And one of the uses that the Bible has for Azer is to describe military reinforcements. And the image here is of a tiny army overwhelmed by the enemy, and then reinforcements come in, right? And together they able, they're able to turn the tide of the battle. Okay, that's Azer. And so what the Bible is saying is that the help that the woman is providing to uh, Adam is not from a position of inferiority. Not from a position of weakness, but from a position of strength. Because she has strengths that Adam needs that he doesn't have. And therefore, we should not be at all surprised that the most frequent use of the word azer in the Bible is used to describe God himself. Did you know that? For example, in the Psalms, again and again, the psalmist says, The Lord is my azer, my helper. 
the Lord is my helper in my time of need. And so that's the first thing we learn, right? That the woman is to help Adam, right? She's not just a companion, but she's a helpmate. But there's something else. How is, how is the woman supposed to be this helpmate? Well, let's read on. The text says, God says, I will give uh, Adam a helper fit for him. And in other translations, it's suitable for him. Now, there's this uh, commentator named Gordon Wenham. He's a uh, world-class Hebrew scholar. He has written what I think is the definitive commentary on Genesis. And this is what he says. Okay? I think very perceptive. He says that this word that's translated fit for him is very, very unique. It's a very unique word. In fact, it's this, Genesis 2 is the only place in all of Scripture where you find this word. And therefore, when you have a word like that, it's a little bit tricky translating it. And he says, literally, it's a compound word, right? It's two words mashed together. And literally what it means is a helper like opposite Adam, right? Like opposite. And what that means is the helper is supposed to be like Adam, but opposite Adam, right? The same as Adam and yet different, Someone who complements Adam, right? So that's what Adam needs, okay? Adam needs a helper who is like opposite him. Now, here's what's really interesting in the story. Notice that God does not immediately present this helper to Adam, right? But instead, what we have is this long, drawn-out drama, uh, this kind of pageant, right? It's almost like that TV show, uh, The Bachelor, Right? Where all the animals one by one try out for the position, you know? And so Adam is the bachelor, and he examines, carefully examines each of the animals, and he goes through all of them, and he finds all of them wanting, right? And it's this long search, right? Because he's going through every single one of the animals, and it's only then that we can really appreciate the deep sense of unfulfilled longing that Adam feels for his soul companion, right? And you can see the pathos at the end of verse 20 where it says, but for Adam, there was not found an azer like opposite to him. And finally, we're now prepared for the climax of the story. God puts Adam into a deep sleep. And then he pulls out a rib. And I think that's significant because it shows the essential equality between the genders, right? That it's from Adam's side, not from his head or his feet. And out of that rib, he creates the first woman. And he brings her to Adam, right? And so Adam sees this naked woman standing before him. And he says, now this is what I'm talking about, right? He's, he bursts into this exuberant song, right? The world's first love poem. He says, this at last. He says, at last, my search is finally over. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He says, you are just like me. You're not like any of the animals. You are flesh of my flesh, you know? He says, you are just like me, and yet, and yet, different. Remember that this is the first time Adam has ever seen a woman, right? So as he's interacting with her and engaging with her, he says, you're just like me, you're, you're the same as me, and yet there's something deeply mysterious about you. You know, there's something I can't quite describe. You're a mystery. And so he calls her woman. Now, 
This is one of the places where, honestly, the English perfectly mimics the Hebrew. It's, I think, pretty much the only place where it does this, okay? Because in Hebrew, the word for man is esh, okay? And the word for woman is esha, right? So esh, esha. And so the English is mimicking it exactly. He says to Eve, you are just like me, you know, you're, you're, you're the same as me, and yet you're not a man, you're a woman, right? You're a woman. And okay, so now what do we learn here about marriage? The purpose of marriage is to provide us an azer, okay? To provide us a helper. We need military reinforcements, okay? And by the way, the, the help is not just the woman helping the man, okay? It goes both ways. Because if you go to Ephesians 5, remember Ephesians 5? The husband is to help his wife. Right? By cleansing her, by, by washing her, by helping her to realize her full potential. And so, so it's both sides helping each other, okay? And so the purpose of marriage is to give us a helpmate, and now we can finally see what kind of helpmate we need. We need someone who is like us and yet opposite us. Let's do a thought experiment. Suppose that instead of creating Eve, God had given Adam another man, right? Let's suppose that. What's, your first thought for some of you might be, ah, that's the argument against gay marriage, right? And uh, listen, I'm not saying that that's not a valid point. You know, you can certainly go there with the text. But for the moment, set aside the whole homosexuality issue, okay? Because that's so huge. I don't have the time to give it real justice, okay? But set aside that issue. Let's ask the deeper question. Here's the deeper question. Why... Did God not create another man? Really? Okay. Why didn't God create another man? Why did God give Adam, Eve, a woman? And the reason is because the point of marriage is that we need a helper, but not just any helper. We need a specific kind of different helper, right? We need someone on the other side of the gender line. We need someone who brings to the table a different way of looking at things. We need someone with different strengths and different resources, right, that we don't have, right? We need someone who complements us, who fits us, like someone on the opposite side of the gender. And what this story is telling us is that men and women, as alike as they are, are fundamentally different. And you know, the research has really come around on this. It used to be... Um, for those of you guys who are maybe older, you guys remember that it used to be that everyone used to really downplay gender differences, you know, because it was really kind of a hot political issue. But now the research has really come around on this, and, and, and people have shown that gender differences emerge early in infancy, and it's not socialized. It's not because, you know, parents are giving their little girl Barbie dolls, and, and they're giving their little boy toy trucks, and that explains all the gender differences, right? It's essential to who we are. It's the essence of who we are. And, and I wish I can go really into this, but I, I don't have the time. Um, I love this subject, so let me just pull out one difference, okay? One difference. The research has shown that if you give men and women a problem to solve, they will go about it with very different strategies and very different approaches. Okay? So, for example, a maze. Okay? You know those mazes where they're life-size, right? Where you can actually fit inside the maze and the bushes, you know, it's made out of tall bushes or concrete or something. They've done this experiment where they put a group of men inside the maze. And you know what happens? 
they immediately organize themselves into a hierarchy. And a clear leader emerges, and he sends out scouts in different directions, right? And all the men sort of operate independently of each other, and their whole goal is to get out of that maze as fast as possible in the most efficient manner, okay? Now, you put a group of women in that maze, and they work much more together. And for them, it's not about efficiency so much, but it's about building and establishing and exploring relationships, you know? And they're so much more collaborative about how they solve it, right? They're all walking together through the maze. (laughs) Now, here's the question. In any particular problem, which of these two approaches is the correct one? Which is the correct one? The answer is, of course, it depends, right? It depends on the problem. No one strategy is the best for every particular situation, right? And now we're beginning to understand. We're beginning to understand what marriage is. Marriage is where both sides help each other out by bringing different strengths and and perspectives and resources that the other person doesn't have. And so that the husband brings kind of the masculine approach, the wife brings the feminine approach, and together they are a formidable force, you know, because they're able to draw on both resources, both approaches. It's like the sum is greater than the parts. Before Christina and I um, got married, um, I had the reputation, and again, you know, this may surprise some of you, (laughs) not really, but... Um, I had the reputation of being kind of insensitive and being kind of gruff, you know. And the, all the time, Christina would say to me, Michael, do you realize what you just did there? Do you realize what you just said was so deeply rude? And I would say, really? <laughs> I had no idea. You know, I wasn't even aware. It's not like I was doing it on purpose. And so Christina would explain it to me. I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. That's why she that girl refuses to talk with me anymore. (laughs) And listen, after seven years of marriage, um, I carry that around with me. Even when Christina's not with me, I can hear her thoughts, you know? And, And maybe she isn't there to catch me from putting my foot in my mouth, but at least I could almost hear her talking to me after the fact. And I, can, I understand her perspective, you know? And, and it's made me a far wiser person. It's made me more well-rounded. Or maybe to put it in the negative, I'm much less of a jerk right now <laughs> because of Christina, you know? And so that's marriage. It's not just for procreation and, and you know, raising a family. It's not just to find someone to cover half the rent. Um, <laughs> Marriage is for companionship. It's for us to meet our deep need for connection, for relationship, right? But not just any companion, but a very specific kind of companion, a companion who is like opposite us, do you see? Who brings to the table different resources. Now, I want to close uh, by, with a couple points of application. Um, point number one knowing that marriage is for companionship, okay? For those of you who are married, you need to make your spouse your deepest and most intimate friend. Maybe some of you are saying, but 
my spouse doesn't get me at all. You know, we don't have the same interests at all. And maybe for some of you, your deepest friendship is with someone of the opposite sex who is not your wife. And if that is the case, let me tell you, you are in dangerous, dangerous territory because that is a violation of the very purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is that your spouse is your most intimate confidant, is your, is your deepest and closest friend. And some of you are saying, well, how can, how can I do that? Well, just like with agape love, we talked about this last week, right? You do it intentionally and you do it deliberately, okay? Because remember that the Bible was written at a time when everyone was in arranged marriages. Did you know that? That means that no one got to choose their spouse, okay? It was chosen for them, and yet the Bible is able to hold up marriage as being of this deep love and this deep friendship. And what does that mean? It means you can do it. It's a matter of your choice. You can choose to make your spouse your friend, your closest confidant. All right, point number two. If you're single and you're looking to be married, remember that what you're looking for is a companion, right? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about Lori Gottlieb, and she wrote this book called Marry Him. And the Lori Gottlieb is this 40-something-year-old woman. And because she was so picky, you know, she had this, she was very particular about who she was willing to be with, right? That her greatest regret in life was never getting married. And so she wrote this book, and she has this section, which I think is so perceptive and so correct, spot on. She says, as a single person, when you meet other singles, isn't it the case that you dismiss and write off 90% of them as marriage material, right? And she says, why do you do it? She says, you do it for superficial reasons. Yeah, you do it for superficial reasons. Because maybe that person doesn't meet the kind of income or career that you always expected in that spouse. Or maybe that person isn't your body type, or maybe that person isn't as good-looking as you've always imagined, right? And she says, in the end, those things don't matter. You know what really matters, she says? Character. Is that person kind? Is that person selfless? Is that person humble? And she, does all, she did all this research into marriage you know, for the book, and she asked her married friends, and she says, you know, in marriage, and this is absolutely right, she's so spot on on this, she says, in marriage, you have all of these moments where you can decide, you have a choice, whether to serve your own interests and please yourself, or to discomfort yourself and make your spouse's life easier. And she gives this example, she says, at 3 a.m. in the morning, when your baby is screaming, right, all those things like income and looks, they don't matter a spit. The only thing that matters is, is your spouse selfless? Is your spouse kind? Will your spouse help you? You know? And so for those of you who are single and you're looking to be married, remember that what you're looking for is a companion. Look for companion friendship material, which is character issues, okay? Don't just focus on the superficials. You know, there are people in your life right now who, are, who would make great spouses, but you're just not even giving them a second thought because of these superficial reasons. Okay, point number three. Some of you are saying, ah, oh, I hear what you're saying. And uh, what if I never get married? What if, what if I never get married? Does that mean 
that I'll be lonely forever. Does that mean I'm condemned to a life of loneliness? And the answer is, I think that there's a way to read Genesis 2 so narrowly that the only way we can meet our deep relational needs is through marriage. And that is absolutely the wrong interpretation. That can't possibly be the right interpretation. You know why? Because when you go to the New Testament and you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul affirms the value and and goodness of the single life. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion in the world that says it is good to be married and it is good to not be married, you know? And remember Jesus Christ. The Bible says he lived a perfect human life. He was in no way deficient. He was in no way unfulfilled. And he was single, right? Our Lord Jesus was single. And so what does that mean? It means this, that Genesis chapter 2 is saying not that you have to be married, but that you cannot live in isolation. Okay? You, you have to live in intentional community. That's right. You have to live in intentional community, okay? And let me get really practical. Let me get really, you know, concrete on you, okay? Let me, you know, bring it down to earth and here's where the rubber beats the road, right? What does that mean? It means you need to get involved in church life. It means that you need to surround yourself with Christian friends. I'm not saying you can't have non-Christian friends. Certainly not. But you need to have Christian friends in your life. It means you need to get plugged into small groups to the best that you can. And, um, you know, we're such private people, are we not? We don't want people intruding into our lives. We don't want people to know our business. But don't you see, that's what marriage is. Marriage is a shared life. And in a broader but maybe more limited sense, that's what church is. Church is where people know your business. Not because they're nosy, because they care about you, because they love you. And so the Bible says we so desperately need each other, you know? Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day so that none of you may fall, none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. We need to lean on each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to love each other. And listen, single people, you can do this in a more intense way, I think, than than those of us who are married. You know why? Because those of us who are married, we have obligations to our spouses, we have obligations to our family, and that in some sense limits us. But those of you who are single, let me, let me encourage you to take advantage of your freedom and really immerse yourself into church life. You know, In two weeks from now, we're going to have a congregation meeting, and I hope that you will all be there. And we're going to talk about so many different things going on in church, a very important meeting, but listen, it's like, every, it's like only a handful of people are doing everything in the church, you know? But if you're single, don't wait for us to ask you. Volunteer, you know? You have, you have the time and the, and, and the ability to really get involved in church life. Okay, I'll stop there. So let me, let me close, okay? Let me close with a gospel connection. The ultimate reason why you don't need to be married in order to be fulfilled is because Jesus Christ is the ultimate spouse. All through the New Testament, Jesus says again and again, I am the bridegroom, you are the bride. 
I am the bridegroom, you are the bride. And what that means is that Genesis chapter 2 is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate lover of our souls. So that in every good marriage, it is but a dim foretaste of the joy that we will experience when we at last, at last fall into the arms of our Savior in eternity. In every bad marriage, reminds us that our spouse is not the one we are ultimately looking for, but that our hope is somewhere else. And for those of you who are single and unmarried, you can have a deep contentment and peace. You know why? Because you already have him. You already have the ultimate bridegroom in the gospel, through the spirit, you have him. And that means that in no way are you unfulfilled. In no way are you lacking. Because you have Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we thank you that um, you created us not to be a single individual, but you created us to be in community. And you've given us the gift of marriage and you've given us the gift of church. Lord, we pray that we would take advantage of these, of these resources and we would really immerse ourselves and really exercise the love and the fellowship and the harmony and the, and the, and, and the community that is in the Trinity. And we pray that uh, you would help us even as we sin against each other, even as we offend each other. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.